In the name of God, the light that fills creation, the light giving light to all people, and the spirit bringer of light. Amen. It's summertime now, and just as I'm liable to change my clothes for something lighter and more casual, I like to switch the subject and tone of the sermon and talk about things that might seem a little too out of the ordinary and perhaps even frivolous at other times of the year. So this morning, I want to concentrate my time on one of the glorious stained glass windows of our cathedral church. Windows which are our constant companions during worship and which people travel from all over the world to see. Now this is a subject about which I need help to understand what I'm looking at and I was very grateful for the time Martha Fullington gave me to explain the window and the opalescent glass it's made of. And I just hope I didn't get too much wrong. Forgive me, Martha. Now, when you think about it, preaching about a stained glass window isn't all that far from taking a text and expanding it the way preachers ordinarily do. For as you probably know, stained glass windows have been thought of as the Bible of the poor. Because if you were illiterate and before printing had been discovered, only the wealthiest had access to manuscripts of the Bible, you could still make out the stories portrayed in the glass by simply looking at them. Although I can imagine people being mighty puzzled by what they saw. For medieval artists, filled with a desire to make connections between every part of the Holy Scriptures that wouldn't occur to the ordinary believer and would wonder why Jonah's whale had been juxtaposed to Jesus in the tomb or a stained glass showing the crucifixion next to one of the brazen serpent Moses lifted up in the wilderness as a sign. But if you were a pilgrim visiting Canterbury 800 years ago, there'd be people like docents of today who'd gather groups of pilgrims and show them selected windows and tell them what the subjects were. And by going from window to window, these docents created a connected story for the edification of those who strained their eyes and their necks to make out what they saw 30 feet up. And there's another reason why stained glass windows are so important to the spiritual life of ordinary Christians. This dates from the time when stained glass was first commonly used in churches. And that was at the Abbey of St. Saint-Denis, or St. Denis, or St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, outside of Paris. The abbot in those days, his name was Suger, wanted to change the abbey from its original state, which was with, that it had small windows and little light and a heavy architecture that made the place seem dark and 
ponderous. And he wanted to fill it with lights and make the architecture light and airy. Taking his cue from a verse from the beginning of the Gospel of John, where John says of Christ that he was the true light that gives light, Abbot Suger came to see the light which poured through the stained glass as being the pure light coming from God, which, when it comes into contact with all the colors of the glass, reveals the multicolored splendor contained in the rays of pure divine light. And this colored light, reflected on the columns, the floors, the statues, and the altar, casting its beauty everywhere, leads the mind and the soul to seek the source of this beauty. And we are drawn upwards to the origin of that pure light, to God. So stained glass windows do two things. They tell the scripture's stories, and they're a way to understand how God sheds a divine presence down to us in ways we can comprehend and be captivated by, and leads us then back upwards into God's presence. A quick sidebar here. There's probably no church more important in the history of France and in the development of the Gothic style of art and architecture than the Abbey of Saint-Denis outside Paris. But I'm afraid I have to issue a caution if you were to decide to visit it. It's in a part of greater Paris that can be quite dangerous. As I discovered, some 40 years ago when we went there. In the metro at the Abbey stop, I was rushed by a group of young men and in the fracas was relieved of my wallet. Going to the gendarmerie later to report it, the gendarme asked me what my profession was. And I told him that I was a minister. Of what country, he said in alarm, fearing a diplomatic incident in the making. And then I corrected him and said that no, I was a priest. And he looked at me askance and at the pictures of my two children. <laughs> and then when I explained that I was Protestant, he lost all his patience and looking fiercely at me, demanded to know what in the world I was doing in Saint-Denis. Didn't I know it was a world of prostitutes and petty thieves? Sometimes, you know, travel gives you adventures you hadn't counted on. <laughs> so now we get to the windows here at All Souls. And particularly to the window that's reproduced on your service leaflet. I thought I'd pick this one called The Entombment of Christ, partly because of its intrinsic interest and partly because I gaze on it every Sunday from my stall here in the sanctuary. Let me begin by describing the glass that's used to create it. It's called opalescent glass, 
And the process of making it is quite different from the way stained glass you're most likely to be familiar with is made. A number of colors are thrown together, mixed, then fired, and once fired, manipulated while still hot by rolling the glass out, much as you'd roll out biscuit dough, to create varieties of color, not worrying if the glass has bubbles in it or is wrinkled or bulging. When the glass has cooled, it's stored according to its primary color to await being used when, say, you need glass for a robe that is to look like velvet, or the variegated green of a field or pasture. Startling bursts of color were possible with opalescent glass, and the most subtle gradations of texture or thickness could be created using this technique. Look at the windows after the service, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, in the window that I'm asking you to consider this Sunday, if you look carefully, you can just make out that it's been dedicated to Paul Lester Ford. If we lived in the 1890s, you might well have read one or more of his books. He suffered from a fever of some sort when he was young, and with the result that he never grew to his full height and was in other ways physically handicapped. But he was a witty, vastly intelligent man, excellent company in an age when being excellent company mattered. And he was the best friend of George Vanderbilt, who loved to talk to Ford about books for both men cared more for books than hunting. And they played endless games of chess and talked and talked. Now, Paul Lester Ford had a brother who was a great athlete, but because his father disapproved of his being only an athlete, got the short end of the stick money-wise. He was always out of cash and frequently imposed on his brother to bail him out. In May 1902, Paul Lester Ford was working at his desk on a novel when his brother burst into the room. There was low talk between the two men, then a shot. When the secretary came in, Paul Lester Ford was found hunched over his chair, dying. His brother, taking the Smith & Wesson 38 caliber, and aiming it directly at his heart, shot himself dead. You can read the newspaper accounts of this tragedy online if you want to. This was a crushing blow to George Vanderbilt, and he grieved the loss of his friend for the rest of his life. And to commemorate his best friend and to assuage his grief, George Vanderbilt had the window reproduced on the bulletin there, commissioned and installed here in the South Transept. When you know the story of this window, it becomes a poignant monument to contemplate, a tribute to friendship, 
the searing pain of a tragic end, and the sorrow no one is shielded from, not even the master of Biltmore House. But the impact of the window is deepened when you realize that what's being portrayed is Jesus lowered into the tomb. When your gaze fixes on the face of the dead Christ, it may strike you how different it looks from the usual faces of Jesus. There's no beard, for one thing, and the face has a very human character to it. And if you look at a photograph of Paul Lester Ford, you wonder if onto the face of Jesus in the glass there, the visage of Ford hadn't been superimposed. But we have to be careful. The artist isn't suggesting that Paul Lester Ford is a kind of stand-in for Jesus, for that would be close to blasphemy. What the entombment of Jesus and the death of Ford have in common is the deep sadness both events provoked, and how both Jesus and Ford had died innocently at the hands of wicked, troubled men. And to give the stained glass an added monumental quality, there's a reminiscence in the positioning of the figures of a very famous painting by Caravaggio of Jesus' deposition or entombment. For those who know that painting, and back when this stained glass was made, Caravaggio's paintings were very well known, and his painting of the entombment especially. The association with Caravaggio's painting would have given this stained glass an added depth of poignancy and tragic nobility. But even without that association, the stained glass is a worthy object for contemplation of the deposition of Jesus in the tomb, certainly, of the tragic death of a talented man at the very height of his powers, and of the deep friendship the maker of Biltmore House had with him. But for a minute more, I'd like you to contemplate the face of Paul Lester Ford, which seems to have replaced that of Jesus in the stained glass. For there's a deeply meaningful truth represented there. We often talk about seeing the face of Jesus in those we meet, and often we practice believing that in those we meet, we are meeting Jesus. But here in this window, it's the other way around. We see the face of Paul Lester Ford in the face of Jesus. It's as if Jesus has taken our face on and made it his, and in the process healed it of all its pain, its sin, its imperfection. It's a new way of understanding our relationship with Jesus, a new way of seeing our connection to him. For when Christ became flesh, this incarnation also means that he'd identify with us so completely that he could take ourselves to himself, body and soul, even our face, the, that outward representation of our inward being. 
When we finish looking at this window and taking in all that it has to offer us, for all its beauty, it leaves us with a feeling of meditative sorrow. But sometimes, as we all know, the deepest beauty arises out of the greatest sorrow.